G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, I would like to introduce you to Amanda Garino, who graduated in June with a Master of Arts in History under the supervision of Dr. Rebecca Manley. Welcome to Grad Chat, Amanda. Thank you so much, Colette. It's a pleasure to be here today. Excellent. Now, this week, we're actually going to ask Amanda about her background, her research, and what she is doing now, because as I've just mentioned, she has finished her degree. She's got her master's. So we're going to do things a little bit more of what a degree will can lead you into for your future career. So before coming to pursue graduate studies at Queen's, you were working in your home country, Brazil, at Doctors Without Borders as an assistant to the general director. How did you end up coming to do a master's in history at Queen's and how was the adaptation to being back in the academic life in a different country? So it's not only a different coming back to academics, but you move countries as well. Yes, yes. And and I wasn't planning to actually initially. (laughs) We were very lucky then. We were very lucky. I was actually just visiting Canada. I was in Kingston and you can't be in Kingston and not visit Queens. True. So I was just, I ended up connecting with a few of the faculty, some professors at Queens and just in general conversations, talking to them about my background, what I was doing. They got me really interested in doing graduate studies here. That's good. And then talking a little bit about the different programs, I got interested in history. They, talking to the professors, they said I would be, you know, a suitable candidate to apply. I applied. I got in. You got in. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and, and coming here, was it was very challenging. First of all, it wasn't planned. So everything was very fast-paced for me in terms of right. quitting my job back in Brazil and then moving to Canada. Different culture. Very cold winters. Um, (laughs) We all say that. (laughs) It's hard, especially coming from a tropical country like Brazil. But I found Queens was, you know, it has a wealth of resources that I was able to explore since the beginning. And so from going to orientation, learning about everything that was here, it was very helpful. It definitely made the transition a lot easier, quick as well. So the International Center, career services. So just exploring all of these different resources was very helpful. It's hard. I would imagine it'd be hard once you've gone out and done some work, um, because then you're coming in and not getting as much money coming in each week. And as an international student, of course, you know you have the added, you know, the tuition's a little bit higher than exactly. domestic students. And what gave you the courage to actually just go and talk to people? I mean, did you have have friends here already? So my mom was a visiting professor at Queens. Ah, okay, right. So I was somehow a little bit connected here. Right, so right. she was initially um, here for a few months before. Right. So that definitely did help me in terms of getting here and <laughs> and meeting some people. That's good. But I feel like it was Queens as a whole is a very welcoming, you know, community. Right. Great. And so it does it, it, it eases 
everyone's path into it. That's terrific. So, I mean, obviously, too, I mean, I know you're from Brazil, so Portuguese? Portuguese, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> um, clearly, your English is fine. So that obviously wasn't as a bigger hurdle as some international students yes. have who have only just recently learned how to speak English and write in English. Because yes. speaking is one thing, writing is another one. Mm-hmm. So uh, were you bilingual at home? So I actually, when I was younger, I lived for a few years in the U.S. when okay. my mom was doing her postdoc there. Okay, right. <laughs> so I That's got a little bit of my English from there. And also my bachelor's is in international relations. Okay. And so I, I did a lot of reading in English through right. there as well. A lot of the literature was English-based. I, I feel like everything in my background did prepare me <laughs> into having an easier transition. That's good. That's but, good. But, but it's hard nonetheless, right? Yes. We're, we're encountering challenges and barriers. Yes. And, and just, I mean, getting here and, and the, the, the load of reading that, right. that you're, when you're a graduate student... Um, it can be a bit overwhelming at the beginning. I would imagine, as someone who's not a fast reader, I love reading, but I'm not a fast reader, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then having to remember it all as well, not just read it, but remember what you just read. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and then have, you know, draft up reports. Yes. And a lot of different courses that you're taking together. Not easy. <laughs> so so let, let's go on to your research then. Tell me a little bit about the research you developed and, mm-hmm. and actually how did you select this topic? Because your topic is treating hunger, medical expertise, nutritional science, and the development of technical food solutions. Has this come from your work that you did with Doctors Without Borders and the interest that you had there? Was it a natural progression? So absolutely. I knew that I was very interested in humanitarian aid Right. from working there. I knew that I had a passion for this. Then just being here in the history department, I didn't really know what my area would be of study. Right. And it was a little bit nerve-wracking at the beginning because I felt like a lot of my colleagues already had their, you know, path set. They knew their areas of research. They knew their topics just as they were starting out. Right. It was very uncertain for me at the beginning. But I decided to delve into the courses that I was taking. Right. I took a course that I fell in love with, which was Hunger in Modern Europe. Okay. And the professor that was teaching that course ended up being my supervisor, Dr. Right. Rebecca Minley. And so I, I, I feel like after I found myself in that course, things just fell together for me. Yeah. So that was from modern Europe. I mean, that was from Europe. But what about, did you bring your expertise of what you know from back home in Brazil Mm -hmm. as part of your work? Or did you stick with the European side? So my research was a lot regarding the general perception um, of the scientific community on hunger and okay. how the studies were being produced. Okay. And it had more of a global framework instead of being oriented geographically to Europe okay. or South America. Right. Well, that makes so, it a bit easier yeah. in one way. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually nice that you've been able to uh, use your past experience with this particular topic too. And I always feel that that's the best way to go. You've got a passion for something. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting that you chose the historical route because mm-hmm. you could easily have gone into more, say, sciencey mm-hmm. areas. Mm-hmm. What made you pick history? Yeah, so initially when I chose history, I think it was from the interactions that I had with the faculty here. Okay. And that I, I really felt um, I had the opportunity to grow being from international relations. So right. seeing as history was not my initial background, I felt like I could develop a lot more in terms of the skills and the tools that history could give me. And so that's sort of what I did with my research was taking a historical look 
into hunger. Right. So right. starting out in the Second World War. Okay. And then looking into contemporary times and then okay. sort of documenting and seeing the shifts through time of through how time. hunger is viewed and then how it's managed and as well. And how it's managed. So, so what are some of the marked features of the medicalization of hunger? So when we're talking about the medicalization of hunger, what is the medicalization of what hunger, right? What is the medicalization <laughs> of hunger? <laughs> it's a good, I love that word, medicalization. It's very, right, sophisticated, it but is. what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad so, you brought that up. I, I didn't want to look a bit thick. <laughs> So to medicalize something is to take a non-medical issue and treat it as a medical problem. Okay. And so it's when you're beginning beginning to view hunger, conceive of hunger as a medical issue, a medical problem. Okay. Um, and that's obviously going to influence the way that you also manage hunger. Okay. Because now you're not seeing it solely as a political, economic, or a social cultural issue. It's a medical issue, it's right? Medical. It's very specific. Okay. And so when we're taking, giving a little bit of historical contextualization into our conversation, when we're taking after the Second World War, there was a surge of interest among the scientific community, especially doctors and, and, and medics, to study hunger. Okay. So there was a proliferation of hunger studies, and these hunger studies were really looking internally to the hungry body. So they weren't documenting hunger as a subjective experience or, you know, a general um, political economic issue, but it, it was very about the physiological processes that were taking on to the body. So okay. you started documenting a lot of the clinical exams. So just measuring out, you know, the blood pressure, the heart rate of the patients. Right. And so these are really now classified as patients, right? Got it. And then you're also looking at very laboratory metabolic exams. So you're measuring out serum and plasma protein concentrations. You're also looking at blood sugar levels. And these are all very guided by, you know, rigorous scientific medical uh, methodologies and techniques. Right. And so now hunger is really this medical object of study. And this impacts the way it was managed. Okay. And so one of the things that one of the features that we see is that hunger was now managed alongside and along with other conditions. So it was integrated in broader disease management protocols. So now you're treating hunger along with pneumonia and, mal and malaria and anemia. And, and this and this where mal malnutrition came into being? Exactly. Being the buzzword? So, exactly. And okay. so nutrition is now qualified. So malnutrition is the deficiency, deficiency. of certain nutrients, okay. right? So very specific. Right. And so malnutrition is, is exactly a term that borrows from and that, you know, has this connotation of the biochemical right. um, specificity. So it's not, hunger is very broad, right? It is, it is. I mean, cause I can say I'm, I'm hungry. Exactly. But really it's not, I'm not. I've got mm -hmm. plenty, whereas we're looking here of hunger for some of those other populations. Exactly. Who aren't getting the right nutrients. The right nutrients, exactly. To sustain. Exactly, and so and so the, the conversation becomes a lot more narrowed. Right. When you're localizing the processes on, onto, uh, when you're localizing the problem onto the body. Yes. And the physiological processes that are taking place within the body. Right. And so the responses shift as well, right? So now they're a lot more technical. Now they're a lot more specific. Right. Designed to treat. To treat. So, so we're not talking anymore about hunger relief, not, you know, giving out sacks of flour 
right. in humanitarian emergencies, but it's about treating hunger, right? So, okay. so food is now reconceived as medicine as, as well. As medicine. Yeah. Uh, well said, well said. So how has the medicalization of hunger shaped humanitarian nutrition responses? Mm-hmm. And what do these responses look like nowadays? Because clearly, as you said, there's been a lot of studies that have gone on mm-hmm. about what is hunger. Exactly. So can you explain that a little bit more? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the, the responses now that you're you know looking at hunger as a medical problem, the responses tend to be very technical. And so they're okay. devised by you know medical expertise. They're very nutritionally balanced. So doctors in the scientific community um, began to be really concerned, preoccupied really, with devising this perfect product that right. could be nutritionally balanced. And not only it's not only the nutrients that were there, but they had to be given out in specific doses dosages so so you're if if you're really looking at the terminology that's circulating in the literature it's very medicalized right Right, so you're giving out the food in specific dosages in specific intervals of time always under you know medical supervision Mm -hmm. and so this whole process is is guided by by um, medical and, and medical scientific knowledge and expertise So you bring on a good point there. I mean, and I'm assuming this is why it's important to adopt this historical lens that you've been looking at, Mm -hmm. at the technically engineered nutrition solutions to hunger. Mm -hmm. Because you're right, special powders, milk powders to help the babies and things to get the right nutrients. Do you think there's more to it than that? Or do you think it will go further? This could almost be sci-fi, right, down the track where we don't have a plate of food, we have a tablet. Exactly. It's scary, that'd be a bit... Boring. And, and and that's one of the main implications that, that I grappled with during my research. Right. Uh, but how, you know, the social and cultural meanings of food right. are disregarded when you're making these very technical solutions to yes, hunger. Yes, because a, a meal is not a pleasure. It's, exactly. it's a, a need. It's a need. And it's if you look at the solutions that were, you know, employed in these humanitarian emergencies in the 1950s, it was pre-digested proteins. So it was protein hydrolysates, they were called, okay. um, which are pre-digested proteins that were injected into okay. the hungry body. And so can you imagine if you're really, really hungry yeah. um, after enduring so much, you know, after the after World War Two, people right. were in so much need yeah. and you finally have relief coming in and then they're coming in in the form of protein protein injections yeah, or you know they could be administered orally or intravenously but so and and it ran into so many problems you know the population that was receiving it rejected it so much right not only because of the taste but because it, it brought back traumatic experiences that had they had just endured during the war right so they're not specific to the social cultural um environs that these right. people are in right particularly if you're looking at all sorts of populations too i mean gathering to make a meal mm-hmm. is part of a culture. Exactly. You know, there's certain roles that each, each person, member of the family plays to create this meal. Exactly. If you take that away by a, just a tablet, you're taking away part of their culture. Exactly. And, and that's one of the things that I, you know, that I was... that. It, it's hard because I was grappling with it because when you're looking at humanitarian responses, mm-hmm. they need to be immediate. Right. They need right. to be fast acting. Right. So in a certain way, you, there, there, there's the need for this short remit to work. Right. But then you need the what's the long term? Exactly. And right. and what are we missing? Right. Um, and can we make these you know short term solutions locally sourced? Can we make them more integrated right. into the social cultural experiences of these people that are suffering hunger? 
Brilliant. So after being immersed in the research world for two years, how was it like to graduate and transition to the job market? (laughs) I mean, what skills did you develop at Queen's that helped you get a job? Because you've already had, you clearly had some skills before coming in to do Mm -hmm. your grad work and skills both in in a job environment, but also background information, which Mm -hmm. it, it looks like it sort of helped you in your master's as well. But what else did you learn from going to, from a job, to grad and then back to trying to find or not trying to find back to finding a job Mm -hmm. did it change your perspective and what you wanted to do after doing your grad studies did it give you better ideas of what kind of career trajectory you wanted Mm -hmm. and then did you find you had the skills you needed to go into that next step so in terms of the skills i developed i definitely felt very well equipped after finishing my graduate studies here at queens i was engaged in a lot of teaching assistants and research assistants as well and so a lot of communication presentation skills came from that like we were talking about the reading load i feel like it really helped me you know to systematize both my time management skills but as well my information processing so and, and critical thinking right um and so and i feel like all of these skills are very broad um and and they're valuable to to every employer right exactly um they're they're transferable exactly it's not it's not because i'm coming from you know my specific program program in history right but they're translatable if you're doing graduate studies to to a range of, of fields so you're from brazil Yes. Okay. But you stayed in Kingston. Mm-hmm. Okay. Some people will say after a couple of winters here, okay, it's back to go south, back to go down south, where it's a little warmer. You're clearly happy being around here. Yes. Did that influence the kind of job you went looking for? Because you could have easily, I would have imagined, to team up with someone like uh, Doctor Without Borders again, whether mm-hmm. it's in Brazil or another part of mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. What made you decide you wanted to stay? Yes, I feel like my personal life had a big play into this so as I said my family is here in in that, Kingston that does help. my mom is at Queens excellent <laughs> and so yeah and I have a little sister so everything in terms of it it, it really helped me right. my decision was to stay grounded here and I knew that I had a passion for the nonprofit sector right so that's sort of how I oriented my job search right. um, okay. primarily here in Kingston which is a lot of opportunities in Kingston with nonprofit with the nonprofit sector mm-hmm. but you know during the summer it was actually a slow it was a slow month i feel for a lot of the nonprofit organizations here right? in terms of the job openings openings uh, and opportunities that okay. were available so so it did take a little time sometimes you need some time off after you've done your degree that's so true too <laughs> I, I i appreciated the time that i had <laughs> over the summer and enjoying the summer time yeah. but it was it was a bit challenging sort of navigating you know the transition from mm-hmm finishing graduate studies and then being back in the job market and so drafting a lot of cover letters and a lot of resumes and interviews and all of that and I was very very fortunate to to have found the open opportunity at Big Brothers Big Sisters which is a great organization which is a lovely organization that does amazing work here in the community and fortunately I was able to 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 get the position so as an international student, I take it then you now got residency, do you? Now I have a, a work permit here. You've got a Canada. work permit. Yes. Uh, will you be applying for residency? Yes, I have 
to make I, that I, easy. I plan that, to, that yes. Because that makes it difficult for an international student who wants to stay. Exactly. If you can't get to the next step. I mean, your work permit only lasts so long, right? Yes. And if you can't get that next stage to be able to stay. Exactly. Um, so so definitely PR is is my long-term objective. Excellent. And so, and so it's nice to sort of have these little milestones that we're going through life. That's good. So now that you're working at Big Brothers Big mm-hmm. Sisters, I imagine you're not dealing in your day-to-day activities with how hunger is seen yep, you know, yep, as yep. a medical object or how nutrition response is designed to fix the specific physiological problems of hunger. Was getting this position something, I mean, I guess you didn't plan it out. I mean, it was just one of those things, as you said, over the summer, there was mm-hmm. a shortage of actually non-profits, mm-hmm. um, paying jobs, that mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of volunteer opportunities. Absolutely. So how did you manage your interest and background when looking for a job? Because, I mean, you've gone through a little bit of that, but there must be more to it. Because mm-hmm. it can be disheartening at times if you know the kind of area you want to mm-hmm. work in. Mm-hmm. And like you said, there wasn't a lot of opportunities. Exactly. So I guess you had to keep your eyes and ears out really well to mm-hmm. be able to get in there when you saw something. Exactly. And and one of the things that I learned, and a lot through, you know, connecting here at Queens and with career services is the power of networking right right. and so and, and that and so I started to build my network over the summer and so just reaching out to different nonprofits that I was interested in excellent and just learning a little bit more about the organization not necessarily looking for jobs right but, but just, just keeping my mind open and, and learning about the different things they were doing so I guess you didn't volunteer for Big Brothers Big Sisters while you were doing your I did not no, no. yes yeah, so so while I was a graduate student I actually volunteered and I still do for Loving Spoonful oh yes great which is also a nonprofit yes. here in Kingston that which works is too also yeah just great work and that makes sense with the hunger side with, of things. exactly and so initially my my goal was to work with nutrition and to work with food security here right. in the community mm-hmm. but unfortunately in terms of the timing when I was looking for positions they weren't open right and so I I, I think I broadened my lens a lenses a little bit more that's good and I just what I was passionate about and what I wanted to find a work in was um, striving for social change okay and and I feel like big brothers big sisters fits this so well so what so for people who don't know and Mm -hmm. I'd like to think everyone Mm -hmm. in Kingston does know this what is big brothers big sisters so big brothers big sisters is a nonprofit here in Kingston that delivers mentoring program for children and youth that face some sort of adversity in their life so children and youth that you know maybe come from separated family households uh, maybe okay. they're struggling through school they're struggling socially and our mentoring programs are enabling them to have the support okay. you know to have a dev- developmental relationship and so it's challenging their growth it's providing the support it's expanding their possibilities yeah. so that these children can really thrive and, and um, reach their potential is there a specific age group of the children yes yeah, so our children um, start as early as six years old okay. up until 16 Wow Six so, years old. Sad, isn't it? It is. It is. But but starting luckily, early. But luckily, we've got these sort of programs to help with that intervention of of helping. Exactly. So what what is your role? So I am the community outreach and engagement coordinator. Great. Which is just essentially a very fancy name. <laughs> that we means like North America loves fancy names. <laughs> titles, job titles. It is. It is. It's all about the title. <laughs> but it just means that I'm out in the community right. raising awareness for the organization. Okay. Um, making people understand the work of Big Brothers Big Sisters, the importance of our programs, um, and how to get involved with us and as how well. How to get involved. So. 
how are you using your queen's experience before we go on about more about the programs how mm-hmm. are you using your queen's experience now that you're with big brothers big sisters so besides all of the skills that we already touched on mm-hmm. um that i developed here at queens i feel like i learned through queens what community really is okay great and so you know seeing the different associations the right. committees um the centers and organizations that queens has right and i've been able to expand that okay. in terms of the larger kingston and area community and this has helped me also visualize how i can connect to the community right. who i need to be reaching out to both to disseminate our programs um, and and talk about the different volunteer opportunities that we have available right. um, and also getting people to know about our services so referring the children and youth that are in need and that can benefit from from being involved with the organization so i guess that segues into <laughs> What programs do you have? Because if my understanding is correct, there's three main areas Mm -hmm. that people can start to volunteer in. Yes, exactly. So we have a range of mentoring programs. We have group-based programs that happen in schools. Okay, so Um, you work with the local schools here? Yes, exactly. So we have a partnership with the schools. Um, They run through seven-week sessions, um, an hour a week. Um, during the school year. So if you're volunteering through those programs, you're only dedicating an hour of your week to be there. And and these are the programs. So they're with a classroom. They're divided by gender. So we have programs that are initially essentially helping the children engage in healthy relationships, lead active lifestyles, make nutritious choices. So this isn't... So within the school, it's not necessarily those that have been identified that need help mm-hmm. it's all students it's broader it's a classroom oh that's good because it would exactly. be hard to say well you group go over there exactly yeah. okay so it's integrated We're with the it, whole class. it's integrating exactly okay and then through there sometimes through these programs we're able to see the children that need a little bit more attention and so they okay. need the one-to-one mentoring right. right right and so we have one-to-one mentoring that takes place in schools so that's also an hour a week okay during the school year of volunteer mentor is going to meet um, a child uh, just going to play board games you right. know talk play chat. sports right and really help them you know sometimes help them with their homework okay um, but you're really building a bond and building a relationship through there right um, and giving them that attention that they're they're in need of and then we also have the one-to-one that happens out in the community okay and so that's that's even a lot more individual attention to these children and youth mm-hmm. so then you're you know once a week you're going to a movie you're or walking around downtown, right, you're you know making a recipe old. together. Oh, that's great! Yeah, so really, so really, it's about building a relationship with right. these, right, and, with and these, giving them someone to fall back on and and chat with. A consistent, with. a reliable, positive role positive model. Positive role model that they need in their lives. Yes. Uh, who determines which volunteer goes with which child? Because um, that must that could be tricky. Mm-hmm. So first, we we have we talk with the volunteers about their interests, right? Right. right. Um, what are they and and also time availability? Are you mm-hmm. interested in you know being just in a school yep. um, and talking with a child there? So we we first we try to de- delineate the program that they're interested in. So right. if they're going to be the in school or out in the community, and then we have you know a very thorough intake process of the volunteers and also of the children that are coming in our programs right and so we really get to know the children and the volunteers so their interests their preferences um, their background and their family life so right. that we're able to match them exactly based on interests Interest. so so that it's because really what we're striving for is a long-standing relationship it's something sustainable not there's not real there's not training per se like you have to do things a certain way it's just making sure there's a good match and both 
the student and the mentor mm-hmm. have that good relationship. Exactly. So essentially before they start out, we we undertake them in a two-hour orientation and training session just to give them a little bit know-how on the organization um, and on mentoring relationships as right. a whole and, and really make the volunteers understand that the support staff are there to help them throughout the process. Okay, so they're alone either. But working with minors, they would mm-hmm. have to go through police checks and things Absolutely, like that? Absolutely, yes. We do require a vulnerable police check, sector check. Right. And we, you know, the intake process on our end for validating the mentors is a bit lengthy. Okay. Because the safety of the children the safety, in our program is, is priority for us. Mm-hmm. And so we do reference checks and reference calls and the interview. And so we have a few steps that, that, that lead us before the match actually takes place. Right. But we're, we've been working to streamline the process so it's not a burden on us and and neither Uh, very time consuming on the mentors as well yes so where are you getting your mentors from because I know we've had grad students who have been big brothers being a mentor Mm -hmm. I would imagine too being in Kingston there's a lot of retired people in Kingston who have a little bit more time and can be a bit more flexible of what they can do so when you're doing your recruitment, who are you reaching out to or you're trying to reach out to whoever's listening? <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I feel like initially anyone who's interested in mentoring, right? if, you, if it's something you enjoy and you have the availability, right. um, we're obviously ha- happy to have, have you aboard. But initially I'm really reaching out to Queen's students, right. St. Lawrence students. So lo- really yeah. looking at students and young professionals because I really feel that, you know, the voluntary experience does grant them skills right? Yes. Um, and experience that could be very beneficial for them right. in the long run, both in their, you know, employment opportunities, you know, and just personal development as well. But also, you know, looking at professionals that are well-established already yes. and looking at the retiree population here in Kingston. So the question, though, is what happens if you get a mentor, with match a mentor with a child, mm-hmm. and you can see the child is clearly benefiting from this relationship, but then the mentor can't keep go, mm-hmm. continue on. Mm-hmm. Is that something you think about when you're starting to get volunteers and, you know, how long can you commit? Exactly. I mean, because no one knows what's going to happen. You never know whether you're going to be shifted somewhere into another country mm-hmm. or another mm-hmm. province or whatever. Mm-hmm. So how do you play that out? Because if a child, if they're suddenly getting comfortable with mm-hmm. one and then mm-hmm. having to get another one, that mm-hmm. can also have a detrimental effect. Absolutely, absolutely. And and one of the things that we're really looking for in these relationships is is giving them the consistent and right. reliable yes. um, person they can they can count on, right? And so depending on the programs, there's different commitment requirements. Okay. So for the in-school ones, it's during the school year. So, so it's essentially mm-hmm. from September to June. So which is why it's very suited to students. Yes. Because, you know, if they're here during their school year, they're able also to volunteer through that time. Right. The community based one, we asked for at least a year of commitment on the part of the volunteers because it really is about building this long-term and and sustainable relationship with them. Right. So it's a minimum of a year. That makes sense. Makes sense because it would be difficult on those um, those children. Exactly. Okay. Well, I think we've done rather well. (laughs) Now, so just so I don't don't forget, 
you know, first of all, Amanda, thanks for coming on and Thank to grad you so chat, much for having talking me. about one your research. Congrats again <laughs> and getting your masters. And then now, of course, your work that you're doing with Big Brother, Big Sister. Anyone is interested, and I think mm-hmm. this is really, really important to get out there. Is anyone is interested in finding out more about how to donate some funds or volunteer or mm-hmm. be a mentor? Mm-hmm. You can go onto their website, which is kingston.bigbrothersbigsisters.ca, and I can put that up on our website too. Uh, and find out a little bit more and remember maybe email amanda this is perfect so if if anyone is interested please uh, don't hesitate because it is a an amazing organization who does some wonderful things for these children in our community and we all need to get behind and, and help them wherever we can so thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much, Colette, for having me. It was great me. bumping into you. <laughs> it's just a pleasure. Kind of happen, using any opportunity she has to get the Absolutely. word out there. Absolutely. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by Queen's University's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.